Good evening. It's great to be here with you all this evening, and we're going to be going through uh, one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture, Romans 8, just a section of it, not the whole thing, don't, don't get worried, but um, going through a section of Romans 8, Paul speaks powerfully about our present circumstance. I've titled the sermon, From Groans to Glory, Our Present Condition and Our Future Hope. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we'll see Paul speak very real about what life is like in this present age, and yet what uh, we need to hope for, how to get through it all, what to look towards that we as Christians have that others do not. So let me read the text for us, starting in verse 18, Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do, what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Lord, speak to us this evening. Lord, speak powerfully to us through your Spirit. And with your word in Jesus' name, amen. So it's Christmas time, December 5th. Christmas is in the air. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Many other Christmas songs that describe the season of Christmas. And one of the most polarizing Christmas traditions is the Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Raise your hand if you love, come on, be honest, if you love Hallmark Christmas movies. You guys are so brave, and I'm so sorry um, what I'm about to say next. So... Um, a Hallmark Christmas movie. Uh, a lot of people like it. A lot of people don't. I think what's really interesting is the formula that, that they use. There is a very specific formula for Hallmark Christmas movies. So first, you have the main character, usually a female protagonist. And she's played by an actress that you maybe saw in a movie like 10 years ago, but then kind of went into obscurity. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, who's that lady? I remember her. And um, she's going through a trial in her life. Maybe she just got fired from her job or she got dumped on Christmas the year before. And so she's going back home. To, you guys are laughing like this is a little real so far. I'm just getting started. And um, so she's going back home because her family business is failing. It's like a toy shop or something. And uh, the, the, the town is named like Snowflake, North Dakota or Cookie Jar, Kansas. And so she goes back home. She wants to find her roots find herself again, and she meets this guy. He's obviously very good looking, and he's usually like a lumberjack or a fireman or any profession that carries an axe, and um, when they meet, oh, he is Mr. Wrong. He is the worst, no way, no how, not for her, and then like a snowball fight happens, or they get hit with some sleds, and they go sledding together, and they start to fall in love, and then he goes from oh so wrong to oh so right, 
and then the movie ends, and the entire town, every character that's ever been in this movie is surrounding this couple as they're about to kiss for the first time as the snow falls, right? And the most unrealistic part is that there's a bunch of people watching two people kiss. I don't know about you, but if you're in public and you see two people about to kiss, you look away. That's just normal. But in these movies, everyone's like looking directly at it like, oh, like, okay. And uh, so this is the formula. You can change the details. I just wrote for you a Hallmark Christmas movie. So why are these so appealing? Why are these so popular? I think part of it is because uh, the, the happy ending. If it didn't have the happy ending, then it'd be a pretty terrible Christmas movie. I wouldn't really want to watch that. Um, I don't really want to watch it anyway, but needless to say, the, uh, clearly I have, they said. Yes, well, uh, caught me there. Um, so, uh, the, the ending is, is part that draws us because that happy ending, we all kind of want that, right? But we understand living in this present time, we don't always get that. In fact, rarely do we get that perfect, happy ending. We know a happy ending's to come. We know perfection is to come and the age to come. But in this present time, why does there always seem to be a little bit of brokenness? Or sometimes a lot of suffering, of difficulty, of trial. And this is the rub, the tension of living in this present age. Uh, We know to enjoy many wonderful things in this life but we still live in a tension of a broken world around us, waiting to be made anew, waiting for the Lord return, to return. So how do we deal with this tension? This is part of Paul writing to us, telling us how to deal, how to live in this present age. And this is his, his first verse, the first verse that we read, verse 18, is, is kind of his thesis statement. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The, the hope of future glory far outweighs the sufferings of the present. It's like a scale, but even if you were to gather all up, the scale would be use, useless. You would see clearly right away that the, the hope of the future glory that we've been promised far outweighs anything, any of the suffering of this present age. And so before he really dives into our present condition, he tells everyone at the outset that your present suffering, whatever it may be, must be viewed in the universal and eternal context of what is to come. And, and uh, Paul, he knows a, two, a thing or two about suffering. We know he knows a few things about suffering. In 2 Corinthians, he goes on to list some of the trials and hardships he's been through. I don't know if it's comprehensive or not. I assume not, but he's st- it's still an impressive list. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, starting in 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And this, Paul says, all of this in light of the future hope that we have, it doesn't compare. That that is so great that the present sufferings can't even compare. So then Paul kind of starts to tell us our present condition. 
the brokenness of creation, verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I love, I love this first verse by Paul. Creation, and he says creation, here he's talking about uh, like non-human creation, the rocks, the trees, landscapes, animals. They wait with eager longing. It's not a longing of uh, anxiety, not a longing of knowing, not knowing what's to come, but an eager longing of, I know what's supposed to come, and when that happens, something amazing is about to happen. And some uh, New Testament scholars and theologians, they, they, they translate this as like uh, waiting on tiptoe. And so I imagine like a little child when like you, like it could be anything, it could be a piece of candy, they're like, yes, and they're like automatically like going up. And so that's what I imagine creation's doing is they're waiting so eagerly for what? For the revealing of the sons and daughter of God. And uh, we already, if you look back in chapter eight, it's not a matter of do we know or not if are we sons or daughters? That's not, that's not what Paul's getting at. We know, we've been given the Holy Spirit, but the rest of creation doesn't know. That's still hidden. And it's not like I can just go to the, the tree in my front yard and be like, hey, guess what? Don't, yeah, no. Abby and I, we're good. Sons and daughters are here. No, that's not, that's not it. It's for when the full unveiling happens. That is what creation is waiting for. Creation was subjected to futility. Um, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so why are they waiting? Why is creation bro- broken? Well, because of back to Genesis 3. So we see in Genesis 2, creation's humming along, going perfectly as it should, and then Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and things get screwed up. And now even creation has a sense of brokenness in it, so it groans. It's saying, this isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. What is going on? So creation groans. The world around us groans with the knowledge that something isn't right, waiting with the hope to be remade, which we see in Revelation 22.3, the curse is lifted, but they're still waiting. They're still waiting. And they wait, they wait with pains of childbirth. I've never uh, given birth to a child. Well, that was obvious. I've never been present for a birth of a child. That's what I meant to say. I've never been present. I've <laughs> uh, never been present for a birth of a child. And so, um, I, but I've heard, I've seen on movies and TV and present context, I've heard it's pretty painful. So um, we know that creation groans with pains of childbirth. So this isn't an, uh, an immediate pain of childbirth. It's not like creation's like, all right, here we go. It's about to happen. Um, you know, childbirth, you know, hopefully the baby comes soon. And then, then when you have that healthy baby boy or girl, you, you say, oh, that, well, I can't speak from experience, but hopefully you say that was worth it. That was worth it. And creation waits in groaning, but their groaning, it relates to childbirth, not in the immediacy, but it relates in the uh, fact that the groaning is not meaningless. That even though in the present time there is pain that causes creation itself to groan, it will eventually uh, become something good. It will eventually be a remade creation. So that's where that, when Paul's talking about like uh, pains, groaning with pains of childbirth, that's what he's referring to, that they know that eventually this leads to something great. So although creation exists in their present circumstance of brokenness and futility, They know a glorious hope of freedom and restoration is coming. 
And for believers, what an encouragement this is for us, I find it a huge encouragement, that even just the rest of the created order also finds redemption and transformation along with us. And then Paul gets to us. He goes, goes more general to more specific here of our present, condi- present condition of groaning, waiting eagerly with patience. So verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not seen, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're waiting for the same thing as the rest of creation, uh, our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And, and Paul adds for us the redemption of our bodies, that we are going to be fully redeemed. And again, this isn't something like, oh, I wonder, I hope. No, if you have the Spirit, you are. It's just a matter of waiting until that adoption is, is fully fulfilled, is, is complete which we all still wait for in that already not yet tension of this present world. And, 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 but I want to talk about the groans. What, are, what is this groaning, that creation's groaning, we're groaning? What is Paul talking about with this groaning? I think ultimately the groans are a sign of um, incompleteness. It's both a sign uh, and, and a signal and a result of incompleteness, of imperfection. So groans come when, when you're just fighting this one temptation over and over again and you keep messing up and, and throughout the, you know, you can look back on this whole year and say, I really wanted to do better in this area and I kept messing up and I kept messing up and, and you know, sometimes I've, I have good days and sometimes I have bad days, but God, why can you not remove this temptation from me completely? Life would be a lot easier if you could just remove it from me completely. Or it could be uh, physical pain or sickness of, you know, life was going pretty good. And then, Lord, why did this diagnosis have to come? Why does this physical pain that ails me have to be here? Why is this a part of my life? It'd be really great if this wasn't a part of my life anymore, Lord. Can we move on? could be uh, death of a loved one. It could be um, relationships that are severed, that are awaiting reconciliation, that these reminders of an imperfect and incomplete world around us that's broken and that causes us to groan and long for something else. And I love how Paul describes our weight. He describes our weight as with eagerness and with patience. In verse 23, eagerly. Verse 25, patience. So John Stott, he's a 20th century preacher, theologian, wrote this about these verses. We are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. There's a balance here. There's a balance here of we were to wait both eagerly and patiently, one not more necessarily than the other. So the temptation on one end is just be all patient, no eager. And you see this when people that just like go through life, they're, con- they're like, you know what? This life's hard. Oh, well, like Eeyore just kind of going through life. They, they're, they'll be patient. They, they're just consigned to there's no more enjoyment in this life. It's broken. So I just got to wait. That's one temptation. And that's wrong. 
Just because life is difficult doesn't mean life isn't supposed to be enjoyed, doesn't mean there's many blessings to enjoy in the meantime. The other temptation is to wait only with eagerness. And you see this with people that don't want to wait for what the Lord's promise in the future, but say, no, Lord, I want this now. And they almost act, they almost act like um, force God's hand by saying, no, I'm ready right now. I'm ready for, you say that you can remove this from me. Let's go right here, right now. I'm done waiting. The, the balance is both with eagerness and patience. And we know what this is like on a small scale. You see this all the time. It's one of my favorite things. When you go into a restaurant and you are at the, like, the food pickup line and you're with like five or six other people all waiting for the food, and man, like, they all wait eagerly and patiently. Because they know if you say a thing, like, hey, where's my food? That could throw the whole operation out the window. They, they could be moved to the back of the line. At least that's my fear. But they're eager. They track every person walking in and out of that restaurant. You're sitting at a restaurant. You're hungry. You already ordered your food. And the you know, waiter walks by, and you're tracking where that waiter goes. Or, you, or so, someone just goes to the bathroom, and that person's like, where are they going? Where, is that my food? No, that person doesn't work here, right? So... Um, but you wait with this hope because you know it's supposed to come, but you hope for it until it comes. Because once it's there, you don't, you don't need a hope once you have it in hand. We know what this is like. That's just a small scale of waiting eagerly and patiently. And we wait with hope. We wait with hope. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we wait with hope. This hope of Christianity is not necessarily the removal of all, uh, of all the, the struggles and trials in this life, but the hope is that in the age to come, when the Lord returns, when we are fully adopted with the redemption of our bodies, we can say, oh, now the groanings are over. That is the hope. There are some that claim to be Christian, that say that you never have to be sad if you're a Christian. You never have to be, you never have to struggle with anything if you're a Christian. In fact, you shouldn't if you're a Christian. Now, they don't say in those words. They rarely say in those words. What they say is you do the right things, you say the right things, then you'll just be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be wise, you'll get whatever you want. And I, that's just not consistent. That's just not consistent with what we see in Scripture. What's consistent with what we see in Scripture is, you know what? Actually, Christians, we're supposed to be the best at being sad because when difficulties come, when trials come, when, we, when something terrible happens, we have a hope that no one else has where we can say, oh, yeah, no, this present suffering is terrible, but what's to come, I know that will be worth it. So if we had more time, I would love, I wanted to talk through verses 26 and 27, but to go through it shortly, uh, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our weakness of not knowing how to pray during these difficult trials, and He intercedes for us on our behalf. Um, and, he, and He's there helping us, not necessarily praying the same things that we're asking for because we have gaps in our knowledge, but, but praying with what uh, perfectly accords with the Lord's will and plan. And then, and then it gets to the big, the text that everyone knows, Romans 8, 28. Uh, and, and we know that those 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Our future hope is God's will and purpose. So there are many things in this life that we don't know. We can all say, yeah, yeah. Uh, But as believers, this one thing that we do know, there's one of many things, but we do know this one thing, that with confidence, God is knitting together all things for our ultimate good. For our ultimate good. And by good, he doesn't mean our comfort. He doesn't mean uh, the things we like. But for our ultimate good, which ultimately, when God ordains something as good, it's going to be good. It may not be the way we think it's supposed to be. It may not come in the form we think it's supposed to come. But because of God's plan, it is worked together for good. Now, um, King James Version translates this um, something along the lines of all things work together for good. And they rightly, other translations come in and, and make sure, no, God works all things for good. Those who love him, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and, that, and, and uh, people just kind of know the verse as, well, all things work together for good. And that's not what it's talking about. It's not just, uh, well, this is bad. It'll work together for good. Don't worry. No, it's a hope and trust that God's will is being, uh, is, is working through our lives, even in the midst of something difficult, even in the midst of a trial, even in the midst of suffering. And it's not only the good things, but all things, including the bad things. So in the midst of difficulty or trial or tribulation or distress that causes our groanings and longings for something better than this, we have this confidence and this hope that God will make things all right. And this is a battle cry that in a world, while we still struggle and groan, will ultimately not be defeated in the cause of Christ. So why this message now? Why Romans 8, 18 through 25 um, now? So uh, I think... Well, if you're like me, I think a lot of us do this even in the midst of the Christmas season. Again, the most wonderful time of the year is when uh, the present sufferings come at us and hit us the hardest sometimes. It's when, when life around us is pretty great where we still say, man, but I really wish this one thing was different. So uh, this past February, my mom uh, passed away, went to be with the Lord due to cancer um, it was, you know, we, we knew it was a possibility, still didn't see it coming. One of those situations, difficult, obviously. And, uh, uh, it was, it was odd. It was the weirdest thing that in the midst of good things that have happened since then, thoughts of my mom kept popping up more and more. And so even just this, a couple weeks ago at Thanksgiving, uh, family all around, a wonderful time, I couldn't stop thinking about mom. I couldn't stop, stop thinking, like, why is this not different? If only she was here, right? And I don't think I'm alone that just because it's the Christmas season and everyone tells you it's the most wonderful time of the year and you're supposed to be happy no matter what, where we all say, you know what, yeah, but this, I'm still groaning here. What am I supposed to do about that? Why am I still groaning? I, things are supposed to be perfect, Right now, at least, can I forget about this for a day? So this text comes to us to tell us that uh, 
you know what? Yeah, life is going to be full of groanings. But we have a future hope that far outweighs whatever present sufferings we go through today. That, that this text comes and tells us that Christians, we do not put our hope in this life. That while we enjoy many things about this life, we know that it's incomplete. And it's not that our groanings are supposed to just be forgotten or, or, or made little or just say, well, I don't have to deal with this hard thing right now because there's a, there's a future glory. No, that's not what the text is saying either. It's just in the midst of how we process and come, come through these difficulties, we still have our eyes on something more glorious, something far better than what we can imagine. So this is where we find our contentment, find our peace in the midst of trial and difficulty. So while this is the most wonderful time of the year, it, it does not just mean we must hide or mask our hurts. It does not make us just forget what we're facing or the sins that we just can't shake. It sometimes puts it right directly in the front of our minds. So we read a text like this that just resonates with that. It resonates where we say, yeah, no, Paul, Paul's got it right here. I can't articulate it until I read this, but there is a groaning that's just going on. There's a, there's a, so we as Christians have a hope that, that in this world, that the world around us are, still is also begging to be restored, that we have a future hope that far outweighs our present struggles. So let us uh, go tonight in peace with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, that the Heavenly Father knows us, that we're being conformed to the image of the Son of God as we hold on to hope in the midst of trials and difficulties as we wait eagerly and patiently. So let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word that it can ring so true even in the midst of difficulties and trials. And uh, Lord, I, I just pray for all of us here. I pray for our, our whole church body, even those that cannot make it here. Tonight for even difficulty, for physical pain or sickness. Lord, that uh, we would place our hope firmly on you. Lord, that we would look to you and only you. Lord, Lord we sometimes don't know why or how that the, the future glory is going to outweigh our present suffering, but I pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you, we would watch you and you alone, and just keep putting our hope and trust in you and your good and perfect plan, knowing that you will turn all things for our ultimate good. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.